Hello and welcome to the April 2020 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. In our featured segment this month, I'll be talking with Libby Copeland, the author of the new book, The Lost Family, how DNA testing is upending who we are. In the DNA Deconstructed segment, your DNA guide, Diane Southard, will be here to answer one of the most commonly asked questions about DNA. How reliable is it? To follow up to that in the Best Genealogy website segment, genealogist Blaine Bettinger will be here to talk about some of the best websites for maximizing your testing dollars and gain the most useful genealogical information out of your test results. Now, this episode is sponsored by Tag That Photo. It's an AI facial recognition technology that enhances identifying family members when archiving your photos. And April Ganong from Tag That Photo is here today to tell us more about it. But before we get to all that, I want to hear from you. And we'll do that next in Tree Talk. Hi, this is Barbara Trinick, author of Maternal Failure. My mother kept secrets. I was born illegitimately and put up for adoption, only to be taken out at nine months old because of complicated circumstances. As an adult, I opened my adoption papers as my mom had married a man who was not my bio father. I later discovered my mother had also had two other children given up for adoption. After her death, I uncovered those secrets, found and met, and have a wonderful relationship with two older brothers, whom my mother had given up for adoption. I also used DNA to uncover who their birth fathers were. Meanwhile, my DNA indicated I was mostly German, which was impossible as the man my mother named on my original birth certificate was English and Scottish. I sought out this man's children, and the daughter did a DNA test, and I discovered that her father was not my father. Later, DNA again led me to discover who my bio father was, and I found I had another half-sister. This complicated story became the basis for my memoir, Maternal Failure, which is sold on Amazon. In the new book, The Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Upending Who We Are, award-winning journalist Libby Copeland seeks answers to the question, how much our genes should get to tell us about who we are? And here to talk more about that is the author, Libby Copeland. Hi, Libby. Oh, hey. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, we're thrilled to have you here uh, on the Family Tree Magazine podcast. The book is fascinating. I've been trying to devour it uh, between the time I got it and going to Roots Tech, and you've covered so many important key areas. Um, So let's talk about some of these. DNA testing, the technology, the marketplace, the genealogy community, the aftershocks of surprise results. These are all huge topics, and they're all in this one topic of DNA testing. Was there a certain event that kind of put this whole situation on your radar and kind of motivated you to really take a very deep dive? Yeah, so this is a fascinating topic. I'm um, a journalist who writes about the intersection of science and culture. So, you know, how do science and technology inform how we see ourselves? 
how can science help us better understand um, why we do the things we do. Um, and about three years ago, I wrote for the Washington Post a story about a, a fascinating genetic mystery that was discovered by a woman named Alice Collins Playbuke, who was an early adopter of autosomal DNA testing. Um, and I followed her story. It took her about two and a half years to solve her mystery. It was one of those very unusual uh, cases where there was a very unusual and surprising explanation for her unexpected DNA results. And in the wake of that piece running in the Washington Post, I got email after email from readers. Um, readers wanted to tell me about their own DNA testing surprises and the ways that these have played out in profound and intimate ways in their lives. And I was incredibly moved by these emails. I remember they started pouring in and within a few weeks or a month or so, I had over 400. And um, these stories were um, heartbreaking and heartwarming. They were complicated. They were, um, you know, they were still actively processing these stories. And I just thought, gosh, you know, we're really changing the way we think about ourselves and how we relate to one another and how we think about family in all these really profound ways. Um, this really deserves to be a book. And that's how The Lost Family got started. And it, and it really does. I mean, I won't ask you about Alice's story, because I really think that's what makes your book riveting is the fact that you have a personal story kind of woven throughout. But I would be interested to know, you were in a unique position to directly hear from so many people. What were some of the types of stories or types of scenarios that really surprised you? You didn't expect that or that you just thought were fascinating? Yeah, so, um, you know, the most common kind of significant unexpected result, you know, is an NPE, um, which is usually known as a non-paternity event, or more recently people have begun referring to it as not parent expected, and so it's, you know, you discover one or both parents isn't genetically related to you. Um, those stories were incredibly common, and um, and yet each, of course, totally distinct. Um, so, you know, I tell in my book the story of a of a man um, in his uh, 30s who didn't know his father. His mother eventually told him the identity of his father, and he went on to get to know the man over the next 12 years. They would go golfing once or twice a year, um, and they were trying to form this relationship. It was kind of an arm's-length awkward thing. And finally, um, he goes and he does DNA testing, and it turns out this man who he's been trying to form this relationship with for 12 years is not his genetic father. And, um, so, you know, the ways that it plays out, it's incredibly complicated for him. It's complicated for the man who thought he was his father, um, and he winds up discovering the man who is. So that's one of those you know, twists and turns stories. There's a number of stories in there about NPEs and about how the people who are seeking their genetic fathers uh, or seeking the identity of their genetic fathers, um, how they deal with that information and how the men on the other side deal with that information. Um, there's also, obviously, there's a lot of um, adoptees who've used autosomal DNA testing to discover their birth families, um, and that really, you know, that they and the search angels who helped them have pioneered the techniques, the genetic genealogy techniques that, you know, that so many people now use in their searches. Um, and I also tell the story of a woman who didn't know she was adopted until she did DNA testing. Um, so there's a number of different ways that can play out. There's also people who are donor-conceived um, who may discover the identity of their genetic fathers. They may also discover that they have siblings, sometimes just a few, sometimes quite a number of siblings. There's um, been many stories about this in the press. I tell the story of a woman who discovers she has um, 22 siblings and uh, how she forges relationships with 
um, with those half-siblings and with her uh, genetic father and sort of the delicacy and uh, the care and the emotional nuance that they all bring to these relationships. I, I found that story incredibly moving. And you're really talking about people who have absolutely no other connection with them, except for they discovered they have this genetic connection. Why yeah. do you think or what just what were your impressions as you talk to so many people? What really drives people on an emotional level to make so much effort with somebody who was literally just another sperm donation a year or two before a year or two after and otherwise there was no connection? What's what's really inside each person? that uh, makes this so compelling? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting and complex question, and it's ultimately a question each person decides for themselves, right? Mm-hmm. How, how much does genetics get to inform who I am and my sense of family? How much does this man mean to me? Is he, is he my father? Is the man who raised me my father? Um, that, the answer to that question will often depend on your relationship with the man who raised you, uh, as well as many other things. Um, you know, and you know, what, what I've found is that the way that people think about family is not a binary, you know, not a binary equation. They don't think, well, genetics is all and, um, you know, and everything else is meaningless or experience and the person who raised me is everything and genetics is nothing. Um, genetics is a lot and also it's not everything. Right. Um, and, and, you know, people are drawn to know more about their, um, where they come from. I mean, it, it, as I put it in the book, it's hard to tell your story if you don't have a beginning. And as, uh, as tester after tester told me, you know, even when the results were unexpected in a way that really rocked their world, ultimately they were, they were very glad to know the truth about their genetic identities. It made things make sense. It answered questions they'd long had. It allowed them to go back and rethink their childhoods in a new way. Um, and so all those reasons are part of why I think that, you know, America in many ways, because of commercial DNA testing, is becoming a nation of seekers. And we're all seeking out sort of our origins. Um, and yet, I would say for the most part, we're doing it in a thoughtful way. Um, you know, we're not necessarily saying our genetic origins are everything. Exactly. Now, there's a whole other area to the book, which is the whole scientific side of things. And the paths that people have had to navigate in terms of the companies involved and all that. Um, yeah. Did you have a science background? How was this? And because uh, I love the fact that you really bring the reader through all this. And even if you're a complete novice at it, what was your experience yeah. on the science side? <laughs> I'm not a scientist. Good Lord, am I not a scientist. <laughs> um, and I learned that, you know, I mean, I knew it going in and I really learned it. Um, you know, it was definitely challenging. Uh, it, there's a big gulf between writing about science and, and really knowing it and having studied it. So what I did was I, I, had, um, I had a geneticist read the book. Um, I had a genetic counselor spot read sections of the book. When I had descriptions of certain scientific things that came to me from the DNA testing companies or, um, or other um, companies or other entities, I would go back to them and I would say, listen, you know, this is what you told me when I toured your lab or this is what I saw. This is how you described, uh, you know, genetic disease. Um, here's how I've put it in a layperson's terms. Does this capture it or have I missed something in trying to translate this to a general audience? And I sweated the details quite a bit. Um, I'm sure there's probably some, uh, you know, place in there where I um, <laughs> didn't quite represent everything, you know, it, the way that scientists might say it, but I hope I've managed to capture it 
as faithfully as I could for an audience that, you know, isn't expected to come in with a PhD. Yeah, exactly. And there are a lot of folks with no background at all, you know, working with their matches and trying to do the segments and the whole nine yards. Absolutely. And pioneering things. Yes. I mean, you know, citizen scientists have really led the way in terms of so many ways in which we now use DNA testing in our own lives. It's, it's absolutely amazing. You know, you put a lot of time and effort into this. It's a fascinating read. What are you hoping that people are going to walk away thinking, doing, saying? What, what do you want them to get from it? You know, I think it's important that we start a conversation about what it means to be able to cheaply and easily test and discover your genetic inheritance. You know, I would love to see more support and research around how this affects people who test. I think there's not very much formal support. I would love to see more mental health support for people because it's a truly, it can be a truly traumatic event Mm -hmm. to test and find something that you weren't expecting. And, And there really should be, you know, there really should be psychologists studying this. And, um, I, I think in the future, I think bioethicists and, and cultural historians are actually also going to be looking back at this moment as as a really important one in the history of the American family. Absolutely. I think we're in the wild west of DNA testing. It's the <laughs> early days. We're still, you know, yes. pulling the wagon. Uh, Libby, this is terrific. Again, the book is called The Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Upending Who We Are. And you've been listening to Libby Copeland. And Libby, thank you so much for such a comprehensive and, and thoughtful look and for sharing your thoughts here on Family Tree Magazine. Oh, Lisa, thank you so much for having me on. It's been such a pleasure. As you heard at the top of the show, this episode is sponsored by Tag That Photo. It's an AI facial recognition technology that enhances identifying family members when archiving your photos. So here to tell us more about how this works and how you as a genealogist can use it is April Ganong. She's of Tag That Photo. Hi, April. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. This is a fascinating product, and I'd love to have you tell us more about what Tag That Photo is. Are we working with a a website, or is this software? Tag That Photo is a software application that you install and operate locally on your Windows computer or laptop. Fantastic. So it's a a one-time install, and then Tell us what's it going to do? You know, we all as genealogists have a lot of family photos and we may not have done much, you know, tagging or adding information about who are in these pictures. What can tag that photo do for us? Well, our core engine is a face recognition engine or wizard, as we call it, because it literally automates the face tagging process. Um, It provides really advanced face recognition technology to help users quickly identify people in their photos and then add those names to the photos, which these are also called tags. And once these are added, these face tags are embedded into the photo, which means they're basically kind of baked into the photo. They'll go wherever that photo goes now. I would compare embedding uh, the tagging information would be similar to people wanting to preserve their family history. The embedding of metadata, which is also what these tags are known as, helps preserve the integrity of a photo's history. These are items such as not only face names or tags, but the date taken, location, description, those sorts of things. 
Wow, I love that. It really tells the provenance of a photo and you can see how it's evolved. And and you know, we might be listening and thinking, well, I know who the people are in my photos, but it takes time, of course, to look at every one <laughs> and add a tag. So is tag that photo automatically scanning through photos on my computer? And and once I've identified the person once, they're finding them in all the other photos? Well, it does take a little training, but yes, we're automating the process because our algorithms start to recognize faces. The more you tag faces in photos, the smarter tag that photo becomes in recognizing those faces. You'll say, I want you to scan these folders or this folder, and that folder can reside on your computer or your laptop or it could be in Dropbox. It can be anywhere you want to keep those photos for scanning purposes or for your own storage and management. We let you determine where that is, again, because we want the user to be in control of their information. That's our overriding, our overarching commitment is to provide ways and bridges to help users be in control of their photo and their personal information. So we're scanning in the background, and as you add photos, it'll be scanning and, and saying, hey, is this, is this Lisa? And you can say yes, or you can type in a new name, and it starts clustering. Even within your photos, it'll start clustering photos of you at certain ages, for example, or with certain looks and appearances. Those will start to get clustered, so it'll recognize you quicker, which I, I think is really helpful for genealogy because, you know, we're aging, you know, you're going from a young child to an adult, and as you name the face in all those photos, we'll start clustering based on certain um, areas of commonality. Wow, fascinating. Now, I know that there have been other programs that allowed tagging in the past, but I've heard stories from folks who say, oh, I tagged my photos, and then, you know, they discontinued that, that system or whatever, and I brought it in somewhere else, and it didn't recognize them. Is that one of the challenges that this is solving for us? Yeah, we're using uh, a, a format called MWG, which because there is no standard for tagging in the industry, believe it or not, there isn't. Um, applications are using different formats and different, I mean, there are some common ones that are used, but very often you're still locked into that particular application. They want to lock you in. We are not doing that. We're using a standard that's generally recognized across all applications called MWG, Metadata Working Group. And this means that your tags remain, even if you aren't using Tag That Photo, if you say, you know what, I'm not going to keep using Tag That Photo, which we certainly hope won't be the case. <laughs> but if you did make that decision, that's fine. We've given you a bridge with MWG to use that photo and see and view all of that information and data within another program so you don't lose all that time and energy and effort that you, you took to do the tagging in the first place. Oh, that sounds good. So I know you guys offer a free trial. When um, a listener gets started, gets their free trial, how do they get up and running with the tag that photo? We do offer a free trial. It's 30 days and there is no credit card required. Um, it's to give the user kind of a taste of how it works, how the face detection, how accurate it is. And if you are liking 
the the application and how it's accomplishing your goals, then you would want to you would upgrade to a paid subscription. A key difference with the free versus the paid is you will not receive the embedded tagging with the free. But once you upgrade to the paid, any any efforts that you've made to add tags or add names are automatically embedded when you upgrade. You don't have to redo that work. That would be you know a key difference between the two. But again, the goal with the 30 days is really to introduce the user to the application, how it works, whether it's something that they feel that they want to incorporate into you know their processes. And they can see how easy it is to do. Exactly. Well, April, tell folks how they can learn more and get their own copy of Tag That Photo. Sure. You can go to www.tagthatphoto.com. And across the top of every page, you'll see a green Try Now button at the top there. If you click that, it'll prompt you and get you started. Once you've completed the trial or you're ready to move forward, you can subscribe to a personal or a family plan. Uh, The family plan facilitates collaboration by including three licenses. Fantastic. Well, there you have it, my friends, a a new tool and a way to tag your photos. Thank you so much, April, for joining us here on the podcast. Thanks a lot, Lisa. In today's DNA Deconstructed segment, I've invited your DNA guide, Diane Southern, back to the show to answer one of the most fundamental and commonly asked questions about DNA. Welcome back, Diane. Thanks for having me, Lisa. So Diane, we have uh, DNA tests that provide us with information about our ancestry, of course, and now we have health tests. And I think one of the most common questions is simply how reliable are they? So let's take a look at health tests first. How reliable is health information reported by genetic genealogy companies? Well, it's a great question. And I, I think I have a, maybe an unsatisfactory answer, unfortunately. <laughs> so um, right now, the information that they're trying to give you really comes in two main forms. So they're bundling it all under health information, but there actually is a, a subset of that just called traits. So like they're telling you, do you have detached earlobes? What color are your eyes? You know, things like that, uh, Mm -hmm. traits that you can actually see. And for the most part, I think most people will attest they're right. (laughs) They're very reliable (laughs) um, because we can actually look in the mirror. And these are things we likely already knew about ourselves. Um, So that's kind of one sector that's falling under health that is extremely reliable. They're very good at those kinds of trait predictions. Uh, based on your genetics. And that's really because there's a very defined set of DNA markers that define those types of things about us. And they've been heavily studied and identified and verified. And that's really what we need. We need a set of DNA markers that are researched and studied and verified to be related to a certain um, condition, right? Mm -hmm. So the problem with health is there's so many factors and only one of them is genetics. And even within genetics, there are probably, you know, hundreds of different parts of your DNA that are contributing to these very complex um, symptoms or diseases that they're trying to describe. Um, 
for example, you know, macular degeneration. This has to do, obviously, with your eye, and this is fairly common. This happens to a lot of people as we get older, but your eye is so complex. <laughs> There's so many parts to it, right? And this is no different than that. And so while they can see some markers that have been studied and are associated with this particular condition, they haven't reached them all. And so really with the, with the health information right now, like as it stands today as we're talking, they're not fantastic at it. But it, it's kind of like, what do you consider to be the point of these tests? Uh, is the point to accurately, completely, absolutely diagnose any condition that you may have right now or maybe coming up in the future? No, I don't think that's the purpose of the test. The test is really to raise awareness that your genetics is connected to your health and it's to give you some information to get started with so that you can explore more on your own. And I think in that arena, it's doing a great job. It, it is raising awareness. It is helping us see that there are some things about our future health that can be determined, and we should investigate those and determine what those are for ourselves. Sounds like it's a a tool and a toolkit, just like um, we talk about, you know, ancestry type DNA testing for genealogy purposes. And, and gosh, as genealogists, we have two tools, don't we? We have the health test, and then we have our family history of how did each person in our family die. And that would also contribute. But like you said, it sounds like it's just a little part, just a tiny part of uh, the information. So that's cool. That's the, the, on the health side, on the ancestry side, how reliable is DNA testing? Well, again, and then we get into this word reliable, like, what does that really mean when we're talking about family history and our heritage? And so, again, you have to divide up your ancestry results into those two parts. You get your ethnicity results and you get your DNA match list. So we've talked a lot about ethnicity and how reliable it is in different arenas and how it's really improving. It's getting a lot more reliable as far as its ability to accurately tell you where your ancestors are from. That is a, a huge increase that we've that we've seen since 2007 when the first test launched. Like it, it's been incredible, really, to see how far our testing companies have come. But that doesn't mean they're getting it right all the time. They're not. So it's kind of like, what do you really mean by reliable? Again, how, what does that mean to you? Um, and there are certain countries and certain ethnicities and certain locations that are more reliable or meaning they're much easier to define using your DNA than others. And that's just an area that, that's definitely increasing in um, granularity. And uh, we're just getting better and better and better at that. So I think while right now, it really, I think it's fairly, maybe I could say fairly reliable or fairly good at telling us where we're from, again, depending on what you're looking at. But I think we're going to see that increase as time passes as well. And so that's our ethnic background. How about in terms of we get a match? Let's use the word accurate. Okay. Yeah. So so with your DNA matches, anybody who's showing up on your DNA match list on that first page, let's say, let's define it by just your first page of matches at whatever company you're at. Those people more than likely are actually related to you. They are your relatives in some form or another. We could do genealogy to actually figure out who your common ancestor is, mm. I think we can pretty confidently say that about your first page of matches for most people. 
But on that first page of matches, for example, you might see somebody that's listed as your first cousin. Now, does that mean that person's actually your first cousin? And if we're saying accuracy means that you've labeled someone as your first cousin when they're actually your first cousin, then they're terrible because all of those people are not your first cousins. Mm. And that's because your first cousin is a label that we're giving to a category of matches. It means that you're sharing a certain amount of DNA with this person. But there's actually a lot of factors that determine if you're actually first cousins. People that share that same amount of DNA could be your great aunt. They could be your great nephew. Um, So there's a lot of genealogical relationships that fit into that same genetic category. So accurately, yes, they're predicting that you fit within a certain relationship range, but it's not accurate to say they're all your first cousins. Great. So it sounds like bottom line is accurate. Yes, they're related, but you as a genealogist have to go and figure out the actual relationship. Is that right? Right, right. So yeah, take home message is these people are related to you. Got it. <laughs> they, they are. Okay, but you have to do the work to figure out how. Perfect. Well, we appreciate it. Thank you so much, Diane. It's always good to talk to you. Thanks, Lisa. Take care. We're all familiar with the websites and companies that offer DNA testing, but there are many other related sites that you can turn to after you get your results. So I've invited genetic genealogist Blaine Bettinger to the show to share some of the best websites for maximizing your testing dollars and getting the most useful information from your results. Hi, Blaine. Hi, Lisa. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining me here because I think this is a timely topic. Many more people have tested this year again, and everybody's got results. And, you know, we're familiar with the the companies that we tested with. But as I think people learn more about genetic genealogy, they start hearing about third party tools. Tell us what third party tools are. So third-party tools is a term that's come to mean any tool we utilize for genetic genealogy for our DNA results that's not a direct tool of a testing company. So these third-party tools are generated by programmers, by genealogists, by people who are interested in doing things with their results that they necessarily can't do at the testing company. So they would download their results from the company where they tested and then what they could upload them to some of these sites and be able to analyze them even further? Well, it really depends on the tool. Some tools do require that. So some tools require you to take your your raw data, your ATCs and Gs, and upload them to the third-party website. Other tools will actually interact with your test results at the testing company directly, um, working with match lists, things like that. So it all depends on what the tool is doing, whether or not you need to actually download any data. Oh, great. Well, start us off. What would be one of the third-party tools that you think everybody should be using? Well, I think the the most popular by far, by far, the most popular third-party tool is GEDmatch. So GEDmatch started in 2010. So we're looking at a tool that's now a a decade old, which is still pretty amazing to me. But we have uh, this website um, that was created. Actually, it was begun as a way for people to compare their GEDcoms. So it was a way for people to say, 
you're my DNA match. Let's compare our trees to try to find overlap. Let's try to find the common ancestor between our trees. And then it morphed into more. It would now it now it accepts your raw data. So this is a, one of the examples of a tool that does require you to download test results from one of the testing companies and upload it to the website. And then there's all types of additional functionality there that once your raw data is there, you can use these tools, tools like ethnicity calculators, um, things like uh, a one-to-one comparison, meaning if you and I were a DNA match and both of us had our raw data at GEDmatch, we could do a comparison and see exactly what piece or pieces of DNA that we share in common. So the nice thing about GEDmatch is that it is a, a free tool. So there's no charge to use the vast majority of the tools that are available on that site. Now, last December... The original creators of GEDmatch sold GEDmatch to a new entity, Verigen, and so it is under new ownership, and there is some thought that there might be new tools that are developed. And uh, the current time, what we've seen is there's no been no major change in the website as a result of the purchase. Interesting. And that company, as I understand it, they're also looking at this database as a tool for criminal investigators as well. Tell us a little bit how that has changed things. Right. So one thing that is um, that people should be aware of when they go to use GEDmatch is that it is a, a database that law enforcement can get access to to, to work with um, unidentified human remains and with crime scene DNA. Now, when you upload your raw data, you can decide whether you want to what's called opt in or opt out of that participation. So if I say I would love for my DNA to help solve a crime, I can upload my DNA and opt in to that law enforcement use, where if I'm somebody that has privacy concerns, for example, I might say, well, I'm going to stay opted out for now. You can upload your DNA and opt out, and um, you'll have that option when you upload your DNA. Jen, what GEDmatch does is it allows law enforcement to upload crime scene DNA, for example, and look for DNA matches that may ultimately allow for identification of that crime scene DNA. So it's a pretty powerful tool, not only for genealogists, but now also for law enforcement as well. Um, But again, it's up to you. You decide whether you want to opt in or opt out of that participation in that database. I'm curious if if some other industry were to come along and say, well, we have an interest in doing that, we want to be able to upload and we're analyzing it for different reasons. Does that opt in and opt out cover all other uses? Or is it right now just focused on the criminal cases? Right now, it's focused only on the criminal cases. Now, the the terms of service uh, try to warn people that it's hard to prevent someone from using this for a purpose that it wasn't intended for. And and certainly that's always a a concern. So um, people that do have privacy concerns should think twice about using some particular third-party tools. But I think that's an important consideration anyway, right? I think Mm -hmm. that's an important consideration before you even DNA test. Think about whether or not you're comfortable with seeing your genetic matches with, and I will tell you, we know now that there is a huge number of surprises in our DNA results. So mm-hmm. make sure you're aware when if you test, you have to be prepared for the possibility of of a surprise. So from start to finish, privacy concerns. Sound advice. Uh, one of the other sites that you mentioned in this article that is part of the Family Tree Magazine premium subscription is DNA GEDCOM. What's that? So DNA GEDCOM, again, is another third party tool. And a 
this again is another attempt to um, identify commonality in the trees of genetic matches so that we can find our common ancestor. And um, so there are options at DNA GEDCOM, for example, to download lists of your genetic matches, uh, to work with trees of your genetic matches. So it's really, again, a tool to try to find those common ancestors because that's our goal when it comes to a DNA match. When I have a new DNA match at testing company 123, for example, my goal is to look at the tree of that person and say, oh, yeah, there's the common ancestry that we that explains why we share DNA. And it's not always the easiest thing to do, especially if we're looking at big groups of trees that might have hundreds of people. It's tough to sometimes eyeball it and see where the overlap is. So tools like this allow us to do a better job with computer processing to try to find our, our common ancestors. Well, it's exciting to see new tools coming out that um, go well beyond what we do with the original testing company and, and just help us discover more about our family history. Thank you so much for sharing these with us, Blaine. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me for this April 2020 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. It's the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. We covered a lot of ground today, and you can find the show notes with all the information and website links that we discussed at familytreemagazine.com slash podcasts. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I invite you to visit me at my website, genealogygems.com, where you can also listen to my free podcast, the Genealogy Gems podcast which is available through all the major podcasting apps, just like this show is. And we also have a Genealogy Gems podcast app in your app store. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree. This program was brought to you by Tag That Photo, an AI facial recognition technology that enhances identifying family members when archiving photo catalogs. It's a great resource to speed along your photo organizing as you tell your family tree story, visit tagthatphoto.com.